Take out your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 4. This morning we'll be looking at verses 20 through 23. And in so doing, we will be finishing the book. I think this is our, if I can count, this is our 31st and final sermon on Philippians. That may seem like a lot. I assure you it's not. We could easily just pick right back up in 1-1 next week and still have plenty to say. I won't do that to you, though. So this morning, we're going to wrap up our entire series on Philippians by looking at the last four verses and then also using them as a launching pad to look back over and review where we've been. Our theme for the series has been gospel generated joy and why you won't find either the word gospel or the word joy in these final four verses. I want to show you how both are everywhere assumed and how even these final verses contribute both to our understanding of joy and thus our actual experience of joy as well. It's always tempting at the end of these books to gloss over the last couple of words as we would do like a sincerely yours at the end of a letter. We don't write many letters these days and we definitely don't use these things in texts. Most of you cannot even spare the time for proper punctuation and grammar in your texts. And some of you have stopped using words altogether and just respond entirely in pictures. Um, so we definitely don't use these in our current primary form of communication, but we still use these sometimes in emails, and they are called valedictions. Valedictions. At the end of a service, we will have a benediction. It will be the same benediction that Paul uses here at the end in verse 23. A benediction literally means a good word. Well, a valediction then is a farewell word, as vale in Latin means goodbye or farewell. Thus, it is the valedictorian who gives the final or the farewell speech at graduation. I used to always think that word was pronounced valedictorian. Um, I don't know why I thought that, but that's what I always did. That's not it. Valedictorian. It's this same word. So these are our sincerely yourses. That's kind of the common one that we're most familiar with. It's just an informal, shortened word of what used to be long, formal valedictions in years past. I am your most humble and obedient servant was a common one. But these were, they were just formalities. They were culturally expected politeness. You can go read all the letters between Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton leading up until uh, their, their duel. They're saying not nice things to each other in very nice language. And then they end every single letter with, I have the honor to be, sir, your obedient servant. Well, they don't actually mean that. Right? They want to kill each other. Uh, it's less clear what Hamilton wanted, but Burr definitely wanted to kill him, which is why Hamilton probably is the one that ends up dead. The point is we often just throw these things on this stuff without ever meaning anything. And our kind of general ignorance and not paying any attention to valedictions can then lead us to gloss over Paul's as if they didn't mean much either. Don't do that. They mean a lot. These final closing words are just as inspired as the rest of the letter. And so how Paul ends here is very Important, and I love how Paul ends Philippians. He ends by worshiping, by greeting, and by blessing. Or to go with the terminology that he uses, we're going to close by looking at glory, greetings, and grace. Paul wants to leave the Philippians and us rejoicing in the glory of the Lord, rejoicing in the fellowship of the saints, and then rejoicing in the grace of God. And in closing, he wants to remind us that it's 
all grace from the all-glorious God who unites us all together into one people. Paul has told us, he has commanded us to rejoice again and again and again. He has said rejoice. So for one last time, he encourages us and he reminds us where to find that joy, that gladness. And so we conclude Philippians by meditating one last time on joy. It's Christmas. We sing joy to the world. Whoa, what is that? Really? How can we find that joy? And that's what Paul tells us in these final verses, where we see that we find joy in the worship of God, we find joy in communion with the people of God, and we find joy uh, resting in the grace of God. That's what we're going to look at there under the headings of glory, greetings, and grace. But one last time, let me read for you uh, Philippians chapter 4. I'll be reading for you. Ignore the little heading in the ESV. I'll be reading for you verses 20 through 23. This is what God wants to say to you today. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, we do thank you for your grace. We thank you that part of that grace is your word. So we thank you that we now have focused time to devote attention completely to your word. Father, help us mentally to do that. Help us to focus on what it is that you have to say to us this morning. Father, help me to proclaim clearly, joyfully, what it is that you have to say to us this morning. Father, we pray that you would use this word to shape and mold our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would use this word to further reveal yourself and your goodness and all your glory uh, to us. Show us the goodness of church. Father, use these words uh, to lead us uh, to love and to worship you. Father, I cannot do these things. Or we cannot do these things. Father, you can. So, Father, we ask for your help by your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we start first with glory. And I saved this verse because I wanted to begin our ending with the same way I think Paul is beginning his ending. And this is important. If you get this part right, you'll get joy. But if you miss this, if you miss the glory, you'll miss joy. Remember last week we were talking about giving. I was trying to make the case that money can buy joy. Though, of course, not in the way that we think. Though we've been hearing otherwise for the last eight months now, all of us are still prone to think that we'll be happy if we can just change our circumstances. Right? Once we're out of this job, once we have this relationship, once we have this much money, or whatever it is for you, then you'll be happy. And so one of the main ways that we attempt to alter our circumstances is so that we can be happy is with our money. We buy things. We buy clothes, we buy a new car, we buy books, uh, personal experience, thinking these things will solve our sadness problem. But as we've been seeing, things never solve our sadness problem. Money cannot buy joy in that way. But there is an unexpected way in which money does contribute to our joy, and it is the recognition that all of it, everything that you have, every cent that you make, is ultimately God's. It's all his, and he very kindly entrusts some of it to you to steward for his 
glory, to use it in the way that he has designed it to be used. And since we saw that one of the things that most fundamentally defines the nature of our God is the fact that he is the God who gives. That means that we, his people, created in his image and likeness, being remade in his image and likeness, are also then to give. And so remember, Paul's writing this whole letter in part to thank the Philippians for their gift to him. But don't forget verse 17. He's not so excited about what the gift does for him, but he is most excited about what the gift does for them. So remember, we're making the case that our wallets reveal our hearts. How we use our money reveals what we love. So the sacrificial gift of the Philippians to Paul is great. It helps him. It meets his needs. But that's not what he's so excited about. He's so excited because that self-sacrificial gift of the Philippians reveals that they themselves have experienced the self-sacrificial gift of God. It reveals that they're, they're getting it. Their giving of the gift gives evidence that they are finding their ultimate joy in the Lord. Right? So they've proven that money is not their security because they're giving it away. And that's not their security because they are trusting that God is their security. And since they believe what Paul encouraged us with in verse 19, that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory, in Christ Jesus, now they can freely and happily give, knowing and trusting that God will provide. And so you know what Paul does next? After all, all that's just review. But you know what he does next in response to all that he's just laid out? Verse 20. He basically bursts into song. And I think, I think musicals are far more uh, real uh, than, than we like to give them credit. Uh, Paul bursts into praise. He, he worships. And he does so in terms of glory. Notice that we've got the word in both 19 and 20. But notice that the word doesn't mean exactly the same thing in both 19 and 20. Glory is one of the most important words and concepts in the whole of Scripture and thus should be for the whole of your life. Well, what is it? Well, again, we only have time for brief review. Remember that the Hebrew word for glory, kabod, means Weight or weightiness. Weight in terms of substance or significance. Uh, when we get a piece of news, sometimes we say, man, that's, that's heavy. Right? Meaning that's, that's serious. That's significant. This, this matters. Uh, I love the illustration. I'll use it one more time because this is my last chance. I like the gym, right? In the, in the gym, for men at least, glory is defined by weight. Right? How much can you lift? I'm a little guy, so not very much. Remember, deadlifts are the biggest lift where you do the most weight. There's a big hundreds of pounds on the ground. You bend over, good form, it's back, it's legs, not back. And you lift it, you pick it up, and then you put it back down. That's the best lift that you can do. But when you're maxing out, sometimes it's hard to put it down slowly, and so you just drop it. But when I drop my relatively little amount of weight, no one pays any attention. But when the one guy, the giant of a man who just lifts like 500 pounds at the gym, when he drops that weight, you hear it. You literally feel it in your feet. The whole gym shakes and you can watch every head kind of irresistibly drawn in that direction as everybody kind of tries to sneak a peek like, wow, how big is that guy? How much, how much weight was that? Right? that that's glory. That's weightiness. 
Uh, when my tiny little girls are sitting down on the bed and I sit down between them to read, my superior weight draws them into me as the mattress is compressed by my weight, a mattress unaffected by their weight. Uh, they All of them fall towards me and they cuddle in for reading time. That's God. He's the weighty one. He is the all-glorious one. He is the one of most significance, the one whom everything else revolves around and is drawn toward. God's glory is his everything greatness. It's not one attribute of God. It's the sum total of all that God is. It's the weight of all that God is, his fullness, his holiness, his knowledge, his wisdom, his power, his mercy, his goodness. It's the infinite excellency, as one guy has put it, of the divine essence. God's glory is his infinite excellency. That's who God is. But scripture also refers to God's glory in a second way. If that's his internal glory, scripture also frequently talks about God's glory as his external glory. And the glory of God here is the outward manifestation. It's the the display of that infinite inward excellency. It's the revelation of of who God is and all his goodness and his greatness. God is perfectly glorious, and then his glory is the display of that gloriousness. So he has internal and external glory. It's who he is and the revelation of who he is. But that's still not actually the only way that the Bible uses the word glory. In Hebrew, it's... it's um, I just forgot the word in the Hebrew. It's kabod. In the Greek, it's doxa, which comes from the word to think or to esteem or to have a high opinion of something. So doxa is that which is extrinsically valuable and thus it evokes within us a response of valuing that value. It's Christmas season. but We read Luke chapter 2. Let me try to explain this with Luke chapter 2. If you want to turn back there, go there for a second. Page 857. This is why we read Luke 2. It's for, yeah, it's Christmas, but it's also for glory. This is a story where the angels appear to the shepherds. Uh, You know, I like to do my 10 Christmas myths. I haven't done it in a while. Uh, I'm not going to do it. Um, We get the Christmas story so terribly wrong. Maybe I'll do a few next week. I love the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. But remember, the text doesn't say that the angels sing. It doesn't say that anywhere. We think of angels as cute and cutting little kind of precious moments figurines. I don't, I don't like those things. And so we often think of the angels showing up and cutely singing. Remember like how the Grinch stole Christmas, all the who's down in Whoville. Instead of crying boo-hoo, they gather around in a circle and they sing fahu fores, dahu dores, welcome Christmas, Christmas day. It's so cute and cuddly. It's so nice. They're gathering around the tree and they're singing uh, together. I think we sometimes think of the angels just kind of like the who's down in Whoville. No, look at verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they, the shepherds, were filled with great fear. That's the glory of the Lord. That's the, the second one, the external, the shining, blinding display of his infinite excellency. And it's not cute and sweet. It's terrifying. The shepherds are filled with great fear. That's Glory, But then remember what the angels say. Again, not sing. It doesn't say sing. They say. They're not a cute little chorus. These are God's messengers. These are warriors. I like to think of it more like a haka. Do you know what a haka is? Have you ever seen a haka? H-A-K-A. Go Google 
Ahaka, uh, the best rugby team in the world that they lost this year, is New Zealand's uh, famous rugby team. They're the All Blacks. And they do a haka before every rugby match. It's a traditional Maori warrior chant. Go look it up. It's so, it's masculine and aggressive and intimidating. It's wonderful. Uh, this is more like that. This is a declaration. They are not sweetly singing or the plains. They are announcing as an army. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly Host. What does that word mean? It means army. A host is an army. And what are they doing? They are praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You see how glory is used in two different ways there? The majestic glory of the Lord surrounds his heavenly army. This is a display of his power and of his greatness. And then they gloriously announce glory to God. And so glory then also can be somewhat synonymous with praise or worship or honor. Because God is the infinitely glorious one. And because of the display of that infinite glory, we are then called and compelled to glorify him. To respond accordingly, to be drawn in to him, to revolve around him, to recognize his weightiness and to give him the glory, the honor that he is due. And that's how Paul is using the word in verse 20. Because of God's glory in verse 19, right, God's infinite excellency, the word can also be used. I got one of the scholars, 11 different ways glory is used in the New Testament. It can also be refused to refer to the place the domain of God's glory. We go to be with God in glory. So glory is wherever God is because he's the most glorious one. He dwells in glory. He has promised to lavishly supply us. And as we saw in a way to share his good glory with us. Therefore, the only logical and right response is to give him glory. That's what Paul's doing in verse 20. He's bursting into praise to our God. Not just the God, but our God. And not just our God, but our Father. Be glory. For how long? Forever and ever. Right? The one who is infinitely glorious is deserving of infinite praise. And so Paul, at the end of this wonderful letter, worships God. All the wonderful theology of this book results in the wonderful doxology of verse 20. And doxology or, or worship is always the proper response to who God is and to what he has done. And what is that ultimately? Well, let's go back to an earlier use of glory in Philippians. Look back at chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11 ends... With this, to the glory, same word, of God the Father. Well, why? Well, because of everything that has just come before it. Because of verses 6 through 11. <clears throat> because of the very heart and soul of the letter of Philippians. Remember, I preached this whole book, 31 sermons, just so I could preach Philippians chapter 2. And everything in the whole letter hinges upon and revolves around those Verses. We don't have time to do them justice again, but let me just read them and briefly review. 
Paul has called the church to unity through humility. That's the next point. How does he encourage that unity through humility? Look at verse 6. He's talking about Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, <clears throat> even death on a cross. Stop there. That's the gospel. That's, that's the whole thing. That stretches all the way from Christmas to Easter. Remember the angels again. An army has arrived. They're not singing. They're shouting. They're declaring. What are they declaring? Glory to God. Why? Because God has come. The king has come. Their commander has come. That's huge. That's big, glorious news. And so the angels intimidatingly and impressively array themselves in a glorious way to demonstrate the coming glorious God. But what is it that they announce? Verse 11. Oh, back to Luke 2. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Well, how can we find him? How will we know it's him? Verse 12, and this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. What? The glorious army announces the glorious arrival of their commander and king. And what do they announce? A baby. In a nothing town, lying in an animal's feeding trough. Glory? Yes, gospel glory. God wondrously reveals his infinite glory by veiling deity in flesh. In the sending of his son, God himself has become a man. That's the most important thing that has ever happened. God himself has become a man. Glory revealed in the terms of Jesus, not counting his deity, his equality with God, a thing to be grasped by emptying himself. Uh, and then God, the king, taking the form of a servant. The one who was in the form of God taking human form. That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. God taking on flesh. Why? Paul tells us he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Glory. I don't get too familiar and comfortable with this. Do you see how strange and unexpected this is? God has come. Glory. All power, all might, all majesty. Humbled, weak, dead. Glory. You see, it's a different kind of glory. It's a different kind of power and strength. God has all of it. It's all his. And he uses it to save and to serve us. Again, not nice, sweet, little, innocent us. The peace of Christmas doesn't make any sense uh, unless there's not first a war. The incarnation doesn't make any sense unless there is a reason for it. And that reason is sin. That reason is the separation that our sin has caused. We are all of us sinners. There was no one righteous. No, not one. We have all of us set ourselves in opposition to God, rejected God, made ourselves enemies of God. Listen, all of our problems ultimately go back to that. 
Everything is rooted in that. Sin is your problem. And sin is the problem that Christ came to solve. And he solves it by taking it. By taking our place. By living and dying in our place. God has become a man. That's Christmas. And God has become a man to die. That's Easter. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul ends 2, 6 through 11 with to the glory of God the Father. That's why he's deserving of our praise and worship. And brothers and sisters, that's, that's where you will find joy. It's only in the praise and the worship of the God who comes himself to save sinners. There's, there's nothing else like this. There is no other religion like this. There is Jesus and there is everything else. Nothing compares. Jesus is everything. And so just as this whole letter revolves around the centerpiece of Jesus as the fullest revelation of God's glory, so then the entire life of the one who claims to love and follow him is to revolve around Jesus and then to seek to glorify God in all things. Uh, reading Friday had me reading through Colossians, Colossians three seventeen, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything. In the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Right? Everything that you do is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, Christian, you are to live in such a way and with such a purpose and with such a joy that everything that you do is a testimony to the goodness and glory of God so that people will see you and how you live and the joy that you have and not be drawn to you and praise you, but be drawn to God and praise God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything. Whatever you do, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how seemingly spiritual, no matter how seemingly uh, secular. If this is all true, what we've just read, and if you claim this for yourself, claim to believe this, claim to be a Christian, then your life is now defined entirely by this, by him. You now exist to do all things for the glory of God. And that's the best thing, because God is the best thing. He's the all-glorious one, and it is a privilege that we get to know him and that we get to live for him. And because this is what we were made for, this, this is our design, and design matters. Our culture is increasingly denying that design matters. Our culture is increasingly falling apart because we're encouraging more and more people to live contrary to their design. No, it matters. We're the scientific ones. We believe that biology matters. Who you are and what you are for is related to your biology. Our culture hates that. But that's another point. I'm making the point that we are made for God. And so, as Augustine has famously said, and I have so frequently repeated, you have made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So joy is found in seeing his glory and in delighting in it and then in worshiping him for it. That's the first and the most important one. 
considered doing more glory in a whole sermon, so I got to just do one more sermon on Philippians, but I resisted uh, because I love you. Uh, let's, let's look at our final two. Uh, they'll be shorter. Number two, find joy then in communion with the people of God. Let's look at the greetings. Three times Paul uses the word greet. Look at verses 21 and 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. All right, remember how Paul opened the letter that he is now closing. 1-1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus. Now at the end, he commands, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. So same, beginning and end. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, then you are a saint. And that word translated saint, hagias, is literally just the word holy. And it's an adjective. So Paul literally writes, greet the holy, uh, the holy ones, the substantive adjective. And the word holy just means different or set apart. Christians are those who by God have been called out, set apart, saved, and also then sanctified. Again, that's the same word, made holy by God. Every Christian is a saint. And make sure and notice the location of the saints. What is it that makes them holy and set apart? They are saints in Christ Jesus. I love, this sounds a locative dative. I haven't used it in months because it just sounds so obnoxious and dumb. But it's a cool word. You're in. That's your location. That's where you are in Christ. Jesus is the Holy One. And we, when we are united to him, then are counted as if we are Holy. Remember, this is the oh-so-wonderful doctrine of union with Christ. God doesn't just justify us, sanctify us, adopt us, and so on. No, he unites us to Christ. And then all of those wonderful benefits come as a result of that union with Christ. A Christian can be a somewhat unhelpful and vague term as it means so many different things today. Again, Paul never uses that word anyways. He uses this one. Are you in Christ. Are you united to Christ by faith? And it's those who are in Christ that Paul warmly and lovingly greets. And we've seen over and over again in this letter, Paul's great affection for these believers. Look back at chapter one, verses three and four. Remember, Paul writes this at the opening. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. So he's thankful for them. He remembers them always. He's always praying for them. And he does all this with great joy. Look down at verse 7 of chapter 1. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. Verse 8. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He says that he loves them with the very love of Jesus himself. He yearns for them and he longs for them. Paul has great concern and care for the church, which is, again, one of the reasons why he writes this letter. We've seen the heart of it in 2, 5 through 11 and the wonderful Christ hymn. But what was the context of that? Why does Paul particularly, uh, what does he want for the Philippians? Well, look at 127. Remember, he wants their manner of life to be worthy of the gospel. 
Well, what will that look like? Well, he goes on to tell us. It will look like them together, corporately, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Look down at chapter 2, verse 2. There was potential division in the church. Paul wants to head that off. Paul wants to encourage them in Christ. And so he tells them to complete his joy. How? Well, what is his joy rooted in? Well, ultimately, we know it's Christ. Well, what else? 2-2. Two, two. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He said, same, same, full accord, one mind. He wants them together. He wants them united. How? How can they foster this critically important unity? Two, three, and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And you should just, you should just tattoo those verses on the back of your hand. You should memorize those verses. You should come back to those verses every time you're tempted to get upset or short or angry with someone. Paul is concerned about their fellowship. Remember, we looked at that word twice last week in 4, 14, and 15, koinonia, their, their partnership, their sharing. And so we've been saying the previously mentioned union with Christ always leads to communion with the people of Christ. If there is no communion with the people of Christ, in all likelihood, there is no union with Christ. Just go read the book of 1 John. Part of what we get in Christ is adoption. We were Ephesians 2, separated from Christ. We were alienated, strangers. But now in Christ, we who once were far off have been brought near. We were enemies. In Christ, we were adopted. We were made sons and daughters. Guys, that's, that's family language. God is making a family. The church is the people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ together. And so Paul lovingly and warmly greets them and then tells them to greet one another. He just means so much more than say hello or can you believe the weather or man, those Mets are terrible. Or, you know, it's just kind of some of our just brief, quick greetings that we give. No, he, he means for them to communicate, to share the great warmth of his affection for the Philippians. He's giving us an example. This is what we should all feel and share for and with one another. Again, back to design. God made us to work in a certain way. He made us in his image and his likeness. He made us like him, and we've seen that he, he made us male and female. Well, those are different. The world says they're not, but we know that they are. Wonderfully and beautifully different, which shows that God made us for relationship. He made us to need other people. He is the triune God, eternally existing in the perfect relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And then he makes us like him for relationship relationship with him, and then with his people. And which means that you were specifically made to find joy in communion with the people of God in the church. You were created for communion. And these greetings demonstrate that. Paul wants every saint greeted. Those who are with him want to share their greetings. Oh, hey, Paul, tell them, we're, tell them we're thinking about them too. Tell them, come on, Paul, put it in there. Uh, we, we want them to, to know that we're caring, thinking about them. All the saints in Rome want to share their greeting with the other saints because saints in love and care. Saints love and care 
for other saints. It's just, that's just how it works. Right? The church cares for the rest of the church. And so Paul's greeting here demonstrates that, that great unity of the church. And at the same time, it demonstrates the great power of the gospel. And it is that great unity that is a result of that great power at the gospel. Don't miss what he says at the end of verse 22, especially those of Caesar's household. I love how Paul just kind of slips that in like, like, like a little dig here. I mean, just say that Jesus was crucified around 30 A.D. You don't know exactly. 30, 33 or so. Paul's pinning these words around 60 A.D., only 30 years later. And the church has already spread across the whole known world, the entire Mediterranean, and it has now taken up residence in the very household of Caesar. We can't be sure this part's true, but one of our earliest church historians tells us that even Nero's wife became a Christian. And Nero was the worst. The persecution is about to start. It hasn't started yet uh, when Paul is writing this letter, but it's coming at the hands uh, of Nero. Um, but Paul is kind of slipping in here. You think Nero's in charge. Uh, you think he's the king. Uh, look what's happening uh, in his house. The church is spreading. That's 60 AD. Only 130 years later, another uh, church, um, our important early church father, Tertullian, I love this. He writes this. He says, we are but of yesterday. And we're, we're new. Right? This just started. We are but of yesterday, but we have filled your empire, your cities, your islands, your forts, your towns, your marketplaces, your very military camps and wards and companies and palace and senate and forum. All of these swarm with Christians. We have left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. They are the only places that you can name in your whole empire where there are not Christians. I love that. <laughs> the church, he's, he's just right. Listen, we're everywhere. How? Why? The gospel. Because of the resurrection. That was the mess. Go read Acts. It's, we check cross, cross, cross. Yes, cross, cross, cross. Of course, of course. But in Acts, they're preaching resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. He's alive and he's Lord. Which means, by the way, Caesar's not. Paul's in prison. He's surrounded by Caesar's guard. It may look like he is at the beck and call, that he is at the mercy of Caesar. But Paul slips it in uh, right here. Even Paul, even Caesar's household is under assault by the gospel. Probably even Caesar's wife uh, is converted uh, to Christianity. Right? The gospel cannot be stopped. How encouraging would that have been to the Philippians starting to face some persecution, some sort of division? Paul says, hey, don't worry, guys. The gospel wins. Christians are everywhere, and they are everywhere united. All saints, all together, all one in Christ Jesus. And so the great joy that we see Paul find in the church and the people of God is such an important lesson to us. Now, guys, remember, Paul loves theology. He has given us the Everest of theology in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. But all, Paul always loves and uses theology in the context of people. He's entirely other-focused, and he finds great joy in others, finding their great joy in Jesus. That's what I want to be like. That's what I want us to be like. Less concerned with ourselves, more concerned with the church, and praise God as that happens. By the grace of God, we actually find more joy as we work, as we were designed to help others seek their joy in the Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I just want to encourage you this morning that church is really, really 
important. We emphasize that church membership is really, really important because church is really, really important. So what's going on here right now in this relatively insignificant corner of Woodside with a relatively small number of people is infinitely more important than whatever's going on over in Wall Street or over in Hollywood or down in Washington, D.C. Listen, forget the House of Representatives. Forget Trump. This is what God is concerned with. This is what he, this is who he loves. This is what he is building. This is his plan uh, to reach the world. This is not just something that we do for an hour or two on Sundays. This is our, this is our lifeline. This is our family. This is our identity. We are saints in Christ in communion with the people of Christ. You will, I can say this, you will not find what you are looking for outside of the church. You will not find it. You will not find joy outside of the church because this is where God is. And this is what he is doing among his people. And so Paul greets and Paul encourages in everything that Paul does. He wants to die and he wants to go and be with Christ, but he'll stay if it means the good of the church and other people finding their joy in Jesus. That's what we were wired for. Find joy in communion with the people of God. And finally, last one. Again, I'll be brief, but it's just the most important word in the Bible. Uh, I, mean, I can't make that case definitively. But find joy resting in the grace of God. Look at verse 23. We've seen the worship. We've seen the greetings. Here's the blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The end. The end of Philippians. The beginning, chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from our God and Father, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The ending, 423. The grace of the Lord be with your spirit. Everything in between, grace. All of it, grace. Everything that we've seen flows from this basic blessing, this benediction, this good word. It's all grace. Remember our Greek lesson. This is the last time. I'll give it to you, but I love it. I was stunned by it. I didn't know this before I started studying Philippians, so I kind of got caught up in it. Remember, Philippians is all about joy. Paul uses the word 16 times in this short book, either joy or rejoice. What's the word? Anybody? Joy. Kera, yes, kera, that's joy. And that becomes a really big deal when we remember that the word, this word, the opening and closing word, grace is charis, charis, kera, joy, charis, grace. And you can't miss the connection. They're built on the same root word. Grace, unearned, unmerited Favor, Again, as we've been seeing, as I've been correcting, not just unmerited favor, but demerited favor. And in other words, it's not just that we don't deserve it, it's that we actually deserve the opposite of it. Grace is God giving us good when what we actually deserve and earn is bad. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. That's what you have merited and earned with your sin. You work hard at it. You deserve it. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But that's in Christ what you get. Eternal life. You deserve death. 
God gave you life. That's grace. It's not only unmerited, it's demerited. You deserved the opposite. And so if charis is grace, if that's God being good to us when we deserve the opposite, then kara, again, almost the same word, must then be joy because of that grace. Joy because of grace. Remember, joy is gladness, it's pleasure, it's satisfaction, it's happiness. Gladness is good, but gladness can come from all kinds of things that bring you pleasure. That's not what we're talking about in Philippians. That's not true biblical joy. That's why you must hold on to this connection between gladness and grace. Joy is gladness, but it's gladness because of grace. Joy is glad. For grace. God has been eternally gracious and good to us in Christ, and therefore we're glad, we're content, uh, we're convinced that all is well. So that's how I've been defining the word. Joy is the settled and glad conviction that all is well because of the grace of God. And so we're going to sing appropriately at the end as we wrap up our last sermon in Philippians, the song, All Will Be Well, because that's the conviction of joy. And it's the great gladness that we have. It's to be happy in God, glad because of his grace. And thus, in the final analysis, brothers and sisters, grace, grace is everything. Our entire lives, physical, spiritual, our entire salvation depends on God's sovereign favor given to us in Jesus Christ. Think of all the things that we have been told in this book. Chapter 1, verse 5, we can partner in gospel work only by grace. Chapter 1, verse 9, our love may abound more and more only by grace. Verse 10, we may be pure and blameless only by grace. 11, we may be filled with the fruit of righteousness only by grace. 27, our manner of life may be worthy of the gospel. Only by grace. Uh, we may stand firm in one spirit. Only by grace. 2-3, we may count others more significant than ourselves. Only by grace. 2-4, we may look not only to our own interests, but also the interest of others. Only by grace. 2-5, we have the mind of Christ. Only by grace. 2-12, we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Only by grace. 2-14, we do all things without grumbling or disputing. Only by grace. Grace. He starts with grace. He ends with grace. Everything he says in the middle is dependent upon grace. And I could go on and on. That's less than the first half of the book. But we, of course, cannot skip 4-4 uh, when we say we may then rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice only by grace. A gospel-generated joy is grace-generated joy. And that's what I want to leave you. With. That's why I want, how I want to close the book the same way that Paul does, with grace. Guys, listen, this, this is why I'm obnoxious about theology. I mean, ultimately it is. Part of it's probably pride. And so, I don't know, that's, there's always mixed motives, I know. But ultimately, this is why. It's because I want to do everything that I can to protect this. Because, brothers, you have, grace is all that you've got. And anything... Any system of theology, anything that puts the focus back on you or implies that the salvation is in any way dependent upon something you do is so dangerous because it is a direct assault on grace. And the grace of God is the one thing that you need. It is your only hope. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. You weren't all right 
You weren't kind of okay, or you weren't kind of off, or you know, you just need a little bit of help. No, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The wrath of God was revealed against your ungodliness and your unrighteousness. But God, but God made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift. It is the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, you will find joy only as you learn by the grace of God to rest in the grace of God, to live in the grace of God, to work in the grace of God, to everything in the grace of God. It is only the gospel that generates joy. And the gospel is all about the grace of God given to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so that's Paul's basic command. It's, it's, it's be glad in him. You can always be glad in him. And so Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let's close um, with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. Father, I thank you for the book of Philippians. Father, it's hard to conclude a regular sermon. It's impossible to conclude a series on such a wonderful book. Father, encourage us now with your grace. We ask and we pray that your grace would be with us. Father, we ask um, that you would Comfort us, challenge us where we need to be challenged, convict, uh, grant us repentance, Father, where we need to repent. But I pray that you would use your glory and use that glory displayed uh, to us in the grace of Jesus Christ coming to take our place and live and die, uh, Father, so that we could be saved, so that we could be your sons and daughters. Father, I pray that we would delight ourselves in the grace of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would arrest our hearts with your majesty and with your goodness and with your kindness uh, to your people. Father, you have been so kind to us in Christ. Uh, forgive us for sometimes how apathetic and cold and bored we sinfully are uh, with your grace. Father, help us to see that everything is grace. Father, help us to love you, please. Do your work now uh, by your word, uh, through your spirit. We ask and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.